Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. We've already got the first reactions coming from the German bishops who have, in fact, demanded that the catechism be changed on the homosexuality and the blessing of homosexuality issues. Hauke is also accusing the German bishops of openly advocating a Marxist goal to include women in male roles. What is this synodal path of where it's going and really the heretical anti-Catholic proposals it's making? It seems to make all of the same anti-Catholic proposals that the secular world is trying to force the Catholic Church to go into. What is going on in Germany? If you've caught wind of anything happening with the Catholic Church in Germany, you may have heard of its own sex abuse crisis, or about the hemorrhage in members since the crisis. Just last year, 402,000 Catholics left the Church, the largest single-year decrease in history. Germany's Catholics aren't sitting on the sidelines watching this happen. They're taking action. Perhaps you've heard talk of schism. Or that a bunch of ultra-liberal bishops and lay people in Germany have gotten together to ordain women, do away with priestly celibacy, and create a new woke church. A kind of second reformation, if you will. The German church is on what they're calling a synodal path. And it's a lot more complicated than any of the headlines would lead you to believe. Which is why, on this deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican, we're taking a close look at the synodal path. You'll hear from people who are actually involved in the process. A bishop who's having conversations about sharing power. A theologian who's discussing women in ministry. And one of the Synodal Path's spiritual guides, who also happens to be a Jesuit superior in Germany. And we'll hear from one of its critics about what the German church stands to lose with this new model of doing church. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. If I remember correctly, the first time I heard about this synodal process was, I was still in Rome. I was still in my last days with Vatican Radio in Rome. I got a phone call from a friend who works for the Central Committee of the Laity in Germany. And he called me and said, well, we are going to have this synodal process I've never heard of. And um, we wanted to do it together, bishops and laity. And we're looking to have two spiritual guys. Do you want to be one of them? And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what they wanted of me. That's Father Bernd Hagencourt. He's a Jesuit who's one of two spiritual advisors for the Synodal Way. The first real impression I had was when I walked into that hall. We have a hall for 230 people. It's not spacious, but it's, not, it's just enough. And one of the better decisions was to have us all seated alphabetically. Normally you have the archbishops in the front, followed by the bishops, followed by the priests, followed by... No, this time not. We have it all alphabetically. So it's all big chaos, so to speak. This is great fun because the, the discussions are not among the usual people, the usual suspects. That's my real first impression. And it was a good one. 
In addition to being a spiritual advisor on this nodal path, Father Berndt is the superior of the Jesuits in Munich. And he was an editor of Vatican News for 10 years before that. So he spent a lot of time helping international journalists understand Vatican stories. So he seemed like the perfect person to walk me through the basics of this synodal process. He said this all started with a study that the German bishops did into clerical sexual abuse in 2018. At least 3,600 recorded victims, more than 1,600 priests and other clergy implicated over a span of nearly seven decades. More than half were children, 13 years or younger, most of them boys. We started with the abuse crisis. We started with survivors. We started with a lot of damage people in the church have done, and others have looked the other way. That's where we started. But what they found in that study was not a matter of simply repairing a broken part. The problems ran so deep that they began examining the structures of the church itself. So it was decided, let's, let's look at these structures as well. Let, let's look at the way we proclaim the gospel. Let's look at the way we live our priesthood. So they came up with four areas of study. One on power and who holds it. One on relationships and sexuality. Another on the priesthood and parish life. And lastly, women's roles in the church. We started indeed with a plenary session, 230 people plus guests. When they started the, the whole process, they agreed we want to have the whole church present there. So it's all the bishops. It doesn't make any sense to have a process without the bishops because they are the ones to having to you know, uh, implement it afterwards. So all the bishops are there. And then representatives of all groups, religious orders, um, movements, dioceses, parishes, um, priests, deacons, professors for theology. So this is the kind of the setup. And this first plenary session kind of set the scene. And these groups, these four forums, as we call them, they work between the plenary sessions. That was the plan. And then Corona happened and we had to reinvent the whole thing. They shifted online, which didn't work too well in advancing the process, but it gave them time and space to come up with more ideas. The hope is for all 230 members to meet again in September, where the ideas that were generated in the four groups can be shared with everyone. This flexibility in the process hasn't just come out because of COVID. The synodal way was invented to be something that the group figures out as it goes. The expectation is that eventually they'll vote on some proposals. Some of those changes are for the diocesan level. And then there are things that Pope Francis can do, like changes to canon law or suggestions for the global church. And a third set of proposals would be for a big church council. You know, something historic like Vatican II. But the synodal path is not like other synods. And because the German synodal way doesn't follow the traditional structure of a synod, it can't guarantee that every bishop in Germany will implement the group's decisions in their dioceses, which is one of the reasons it's drawn some heated criticism. Auch Papst Franziskus hat trotz seiner blumigen Rede von der the voice you're hearing right now is Dr. Thomas Schuler, the director of the Institute of Canon Law at the University of Münster. Dr. Schuler wasn't comfortable being interviewed in English, and since my German is nicht so gut, we decided to exchange questions and answers over email. He told me that he was approached at the start of the synodal way and asked what he thought the best way forward would be. He said he recommended a national council with decisive voting rights for both bishops and laypeople which is a structure that Rome had previously approved for a German synod back in the 70s. 
A legally binding synod would mean that all the proposals and resolutions would actually be followed by bishops in Germany. That is, of course, with Rome's blessing. But with this synodal path, nothing is legally binding. Even if a resolution is passed by the group, it's up to each bishop to choose whether to carry them out or not. Dr. Schuler is also concerned that Rome won't consider the group's suggestions for the global church. In short, he thinks the process could amount to nothing. But even as a critic, Dr. Schuler thinks that those who call the process schismatic are out of hand. In our interview, he called the talk of schism a vicious and unfounded defamation, and added that nobody in Germany questions our creed or the papal episcopal constitution of our church. All of this begs the question, what does Rome think of Germany's synodal way? Den Brief des Papstes Franziskus an das pilgernde Volk Gottes in Deutschland. Und damit sind wir gemeint, nicht nur die Bischöfe... The synodal path has certainly ruffled some feathers in Rome. The group was planning to discuss some pretty flammable subjects, like women's ordination and priestly celibacy. And they had hoped that the German bishops would commit to implementing the group's decisions. Here are some things to keep in mind. The synodal way wants their decisions to be binding as far as they can be. They know that they can't change doctrine, or the hot-button topics like women's ordination and priestly celibacy. So their votes on these doctrinal issues would just be a way of letting Rome know their views. Basically, an opinion poll. The binding decisions would be more of the local stuff. Decisions about administrative structures, parish life recommendations, that kind of thing. But the Vatican was still pretty concerned when they heard this plan. Here's America's Vatican correspondent, Gerard O'Connell. Well, basically, Rome was upset because Germany had not decided to follow the path that was envisaged in canon law. They wanted to walk another road. By writing to them, he effectively gave the green light to them walking the synodal path. Pope Francis wrote a letter addressed to the people of God in Germany, saying, okay, you can have your synodal process, but there are two temptations I know you face. He said, there is the temptation, you know, to go it alone. It's the German church, like the United States church, lots of money, lots of structures, lots of feeling, you know, we have it. We can resolve our own problems. We can do it our way. Colleen, I've watched the synods and I've watched the conclaves and you see the Germans come with their whole press equipment with a whole lot of people. And then you see bishops from cardinals from countries of very poor just being able to manage to arrive in Rome with nobody. So Francis is very conscious of this. And uh, he, of course, warned them against, you know, don't just think you can do it yourself. You're part of the universal church. You're not just a national church. And he didn't use that word, but the, the message was, you know, realize you can't go this road yourself. An important thing to understand here is that the German church is really wealthy. Because in Germany, if you're part of a couple of the largest churches in the country, including the Catholic church, you pay something called a church tax. It's 3% of your income that goes right to your church, and the only way to get out of it is by declaring to the government that you've left the church. That's how the German bishops were able to know immediately when people started leaving after the abuse crisis. And it's how the German people could let the church know how they felt, by voting with their feet and their wallets. So this church tax means that the German church has a ton of money. 
For example, in terms of assets, Germany's largest archdiocese is worth more than the Vatican. And all that wealth, combined with Germany's huge contributions to theology, from the Reformation all the way to Pope Benedict, has given the German church a sense of independence, that they can take care of themselves. And sometimes that's strained their relationship with Rome, especially when Rome seems to be pulling Germany back when the Germans want to push forward. And then the second temptation which he warned them against was to the temptation of the father of the lie and of division. He called him the master of separation, who pushing us to seek some apparent good or answer to a specific situation, ends up by fragmenting the body of the holy people of God. Pope Francis also wanted to make sure that the synodal process didn't just focus on looking internally at the church with topics like power and the priesthood, but to remain a church that reaches out to the world as well. Francis made very clear to the Germans, but also when he's now called the Synod for the Universal Church, he's made very clear it's to be a, an evangelization as your first goal. This is why you're putting your structures in place. It's not just to have improved the structures, changed them around, you know, moving chairs on the Titanic. You've got to see how you're going to bring the gospel of Christ to people, how you're going to attract people. Because nobody's going to come into a church where people are fighting at each other. In all my conversations with folks involved in the synodal path, it seems like they took the Pope's message to heart. All the talk about changing structures and even the controversial issues of doctrine have the end goal of rebuilding the church's credibility after the abuse crisis. They all want the church to become a community that's once again attractive and credible, that draws people in to hear the message of Jesus. È proprio della sinodalità la presenza dello Spirito Santo. Dal contrario, non è sinodalità, è parlatorio, parlamento, altra cosa. But the Vatican's concerns weren't limited to the Pope's letter. Shortly after that came an unexpected letter from Cardinal Ouellette, the prefect of the Vatican's Congregation for Bishops. In that letter, Ouellette laid down some guidelines for the Synodal Way, which really upset Cardinal Marx, who's the Pope's top German advisor and a strong supporter of the Synodal process. Well, Ouellette really w wanted it more structured, more legalized, as per the canon law. And Cardinal Marx said, I come to Rome for these meetings with the Pope as cardinal advisor. This was, of course, before the pandemic. He said, I see him. He never says anything to me. Why does he have to write a letter without talking to me first? He got very angry about this. What the letter said was basically that the synodal way had no right to make binding decisions because it can't make decisions for the universal church but also because, in a traditional synod, lay people and bishops have different roles. The lay people can be involved in studying and deliberating, but ultimately it's the bishops who vote and make the decisions. The German synodal way wanted lay people and bishops voting in equal measure. So where does all of this stand today? Today, the process is focused on the original four study areas, but with an eye towards rebuilding the church's credibility so it can evangelize. Both laypeople and bishops vote, so it isn't canonically binding. And most bishops haven't vocally committed to implementing anything. But 
There's also an element of trust here. If the bishops participate in the process and then make no changes, what message would it send? As one source phrased it, legally, this is not binding. Morally, it is. I would say in terms of Rome that Rome is vigilant, is watching, and some more sympathetically, some with concern, some perhaps not very sympathetic. So you, you've got different shades of, I mean, I, I've always said, and I should say to people, that the Vatican, the Roman Curia, is not monolithic. As for Pope Francis, Jerry thinks he's happy to see this going forward. You've got many shades of opinion. But I always take as my starting point here that the Pope, having considered and understood what the Germans were trying to do, wrote a letter saying, here, I give you some advice. Go ahead. It's good to discuss. Here's some advice. And he laid down some markers. And of course, if they totally ignore the markers, that's another question. But I do not see this. The Germans have tended to be people who uh, respect authority in the final analysis. I'm Juliana Eckstein. I am an Old Testament scholar. I work at a Jesuit college for philosophy and theology in Frankfurt am Main. St. Georgen is its name. St. George's, would it be in English? So how did you first get involved in the Synodal Way? Do you remember the moment that you received an invitation? Yeah, I must have gotten an invitation. But actually, what I first got was um, advertisement by Catholic publishers. They try to like get us on their side and they try to convince us of their stories and try to influence us before the process even started. I was actually surprised that they would target me. I wouldn't have considered myself so important that I would be a target for those groups. When she's not dodging aggressive publishers and critics, Dr. Eckstein is part of the forum looking at women's roles in the church. I went into the group that wants to explore what is possible and how women can be better promoted and get more influence, also positions of power within the uh, realm of the, or within the limits of the uh, canon law. So we try to expand this as much as possible to try to explore the possibilities that are there that are not being used. Why I feel so passionate about it, it has been a process for me as well to get into those questions. But first of all, it was like, I didn't study theology from the start when I came off school. I studied translation and interpreting at first. And I would have never thought about theology, never, ever, because I grew up in an environment where this just wasn't a thing, women in theology. So I needed to go to Brussels. I needed to go translating at a, or interpreting at a theological conference that I even got the idea that women can be in theology and that they can do something and that they can also reach a position of influence within the church. And this is something that I'm passionate about because I think that many girls still don't know this, that this could be something for them. And for me, like theology was a discovery. It was so freeing. It was, I, I didn't know before that you can like think and believe at the same time that they are not mutually exclusive. I always thought like growing up that you would have to abandon one or the other. 
And theology has taught me that this is just nonsense. You don't have to. You can think and you can believe and it goes hand in hand. And um, I would just like so much more women, girls, to know that this is possible and that this is a path for them and the church has a way for them and that the church needs them. And I would also want the church to know that they need them. They need those girls. They need those women. They need those experiences. They need those this knowledge. They need those competences. Dr. Eckstein's subgroup is focusing on theological questions, like who is able to act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ at Mass, and why. They're also talking about baptism, and the fact that every person in the church is baptized priest, prophet, and king. So they're asking, what is that priesthood conferred at baptism, and how does it relate to the ordained priesthood? And of course, these questions aren't raised in a church vacuum. They're born in conversation with the wider society, which has its own views on gender equality that impacts one's own understanding of gender roles in the church. So it could seem like this group might be hyper-focused on women's ordination. And in fact, one prominent theologian quit the synodal path very early on because she thought it was obsessed with women's ordination. But Dr. Eckstein's a pragmatist. She knows that women aren't likely to be ordained, so she wants to look at other ways of giving women positions of authority. The decisions that we are going to make, we will make them on three levels. Okay, so one is things that can be done in Germany on the level of the dioceses. So they don't have to ask anyone to do this. And, and we have like proposals in our forum for exactly that. So they can enhance the presence of women in ministries and uh, offices without having to ask anyone. And this would be fine. And the second set of proposals will be yes to Rome. But it's something that the Pope can change. For example, can a law that doesn't touch on like basic dogmatic stuff. And the third set of proposals will be for a possible council. So obviously this goes off to the Pope after this. Um, I'm wondering, you know, this is always the big question with the Synod is if you propose something and the Pope says no, was it a failure? You know, and I, I'm curious about your conception of success with this process. How will you know if the synodal path has succeeded? If something changes. Simple as that. If something changes, if something goes forward, you have to remember the origin of the synodal path. It was the abuse crisis. And if the church changes on that, if the church becomes a safe place for minors, basically, but also for adults. Something has to change. Something needs to change. We can't go on like this. For Dr. Eckstein, the top priority of this synodal path has to be weeding out the evil of abuse from the church's structures. In the synodal path's first meeting, when all the bishops and lay people came into that hall and sat together, no one was there representing abuse survivors. Dr. Eckstein was one of the people who lobbied to change that. And at the second meeting, on Zoom, survivors were invited to contribute and were given significant floor time. But that original oversight, leaving out abuse victims, really underscores the urgent need for the German church to take a hard look at itself. We have to change something now. People are leaving the church, they are leaving in droves, and uh, we don't have enough to hold them back. And we always hear, we should evangelize. 
and uh, we should spread the faith and we should talk about the faith and we should win people and we should go out to the fringes and so on. And this is true. But we feel like hypocrites doing this if what we are spreading is an abusive system and abusive not only in terms of sexual relations, but also abusive in respect to power and how power is not controlled and how power is abused in so many ways. And we just can't be evangelical if we don't start with ourselves. Up next, we'll hear from one bishop who's involved in the synodal process. It's not a kind of schism. Absolutely not. Well, my name is Franz Josef Overbeck. <laughs> in American English, Franz Josef Overbeck. In German, Franz Josef Overbeck. <laughs> ah, yes, well, uh, I'm Bishop of Essen, who is one of the most industrialized towns in Germany, in the western part of Germany. Bishop Overbeck's diocese has seen a lot of change over the years. Like much of Germany, it used to be pretty reliably half-and-half half Catholic and Lutheran. But now it's more like 30-30, with another 30% unaffiliated and 10% Muslim. There have been a lot of Turkish immigrants coming to Essen to work in the energy industry. Those changing demographics have meant that the Essen diocese has a lot of buildings sitting half-empty, and they've been getting emptier ever since the abuse crisis broke out in Germany in 2010. And after these 10 years, it was very clear for us that we have to react in a way, not only looking who has been the first responsible person of um, the priests who made this abusing regarding to the responsibility of the whole church. That meant 10 years ago, we have to look also to our moral life, especially to the Catholic ethics, also to the role of the priests, how they are going to live all in all day life and what has been the possibilities not to hinder them to react in this terrible way. From the beginning, the abuse crisis in Germany has been a question of authority. Priests abuse their authority by abusing children and bishops abuse their authority by covering it up. But more than that, it's called into question the moral authority of the church's leaders. Bishop Overbeck wants to wrestle with that question of authority. So he volunteered, with a laywoman, to lead the Synodal Paths Forum on the exercise of power in the church. I thought, and I'm thinking it's a good idea, uh, to share these uh, terrible experiences and also this quite different um, task we have to stand uh, together, not only from the part of our bishop conference, but also together with all the likes, with uh, those we are just... Uh, living our faith in all day life here in Germany. It's always better not to do that alone, you know. <laughs> it is, it's a kind of a, a solidarity which we have to practice. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were saying that you're involved in this forum on power, because as a bishop, you are a person who, who holds power in the church. I do. Yes, I do. I have that power. <laughs> I'm very yeah. conscious of that, you know. <laughs> so what is what is it like for you in these discussions? Do you find that you have to kind of step back and listen is it different in some way yes very different what's what's going on with the theme of power and empowerment of the whole catholic family because the abuse um, the sexual abuse is only has only one origin in the wrong use of power in our church because um, some of the bishops some of other priests didn't do the office in the right way you know <laughs> 
uh, without being um, at the same time stopped by the hierarchy and other people and other faithful. And so this is not a quite only a question of the empowerment and the question of power of bishops and priests, but also a kind of um, asking and questioning ourselves what's going on with the empowerment of the lay people. And so we are asking, would it be better to go together between um, not only as bishops with the lay people, but also with everybody living with us? Now, Bishop Overbeck knows that the church isn't a democracy, but he sees incorporating elements of it as a form of enculturation, which is this idea that evangelization is going to look different everywhere, and that sometimes the best way to evangelize is by incorporating elements of the local culture. Within the last few years, the word enculturation has brought to mind the Amazon Synod, or the Zaire Rite of the Mass, where dance and indigenous symbols are worked into the local expression of the Catholic faith. But what does enculturation look like in a society that looks like mine? Where you have to find a way to justify a hierarchical structure to people who believe in a certain kind of democratic equality. The question becomes, what parts of the local culture can actually help spread the gospel more widely? And what is not open to cultural adaptations? Figuring that out is a process. A process full of conversations, revisions. Decisions that have to be approved by Rome. And then, individual bishops deciding whether to make changes in their local diocese. That's how synodality works. It's frustrating, and it feels very stop-and-go, and the application of it often ends up looking differently. But Pope Francis believes that it's still worth it to have that conversation. Because really encountering and grappling with another person's perspective has the potential to transform your own. This is really, I would say, the peak point of his pontificate. Because he feels the church has to change. We've got to go on the road. Priests, people, bishops, lay people, religious, all together, working together. Not this kind of pyramidical approach that we've had in the past. We, we've got to take a new Path. And this is really the reformation of the church that, that Vatican II wanted and that Francis is now pushing through as perhaps the last big effort of his pontificate. In the end, synodality is a spiritual process. If we look at the way the spiritual process expresses itself, it's sometimes very strange because it's, it's conflict, it's debate, um, and this is probably what causes uh, a lot of media coverage outside. It looks as if it's a parliament, but it isn't. It surely isn't. The way we we talk, the way we discuss, even the way we vote, if voting is called for on procedure, on, on going forward or not, and these kind of things is more than just a vote. It's really a spiritual process. That's Father Bernd Hagencourt again. With all the robust discussions surrounding this, I wanted to know whether this process was really all that spiritual with genuine openness and listening, or whether participants came in with their own agenda and jockeyed for influence? Both. It's the Lord's Church, so it's both. It's always both. Yes, there are people with an agenda, and you find them um, talking to microphones a lot. But the majority of the people, of the participants, doesn't have an agenda as such, other than moving forward, finding solutions together, 
And they see it's not easy. They see it's difficult. You have conflict. You have different opinions. You have different solutions. So we try them or not and discuss them. So most of them are really interested in moving forward and listening to the Spirit uh, so that there will be a church and there will be um, the Lord's Church tomorrow as well. So what does that listening look like in this process? Well, it's it's, it's uh, so many different forms and shapes. It's not just sitting there and uh, opening your ears and getting words in and trying to understand them, but f- trying to figure out what is he or she trying to tell me? What is behind that? Where does she or he come from? Uh, what is he or she reacting to? It's so much more. Uh, normally when we are in, in a conference, it's just, it's just information you get. But if you're really trying to get the Holy Spirit involved, it's much more than that. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, you really get to see the faith of others. And that has enriched my faith, definitely. Real quick before we go, I want to introduce somebody to you. Hello. This is Maggie Van Dorn. She is one of our producers here at American Media, and she produces Inside the Vatican every week. So if we ever sound good, it's thanks to her. (laughs) You're too kind, Colleen. So I wanted to come on because this is our final episode before our summer break. And I want to remind you all that you can keep up with Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org. We will be back with weekly episodes in September. But in the meantime, we really need your help. Our team is always working on new and fresh ways to bring stories from the Vatican and around the world home to you. We've got our weekly conversations with Jerry in Rome. We've got special interviews with experts like Austin Ivory and Juan Carlos Cruz. Colleen does some amazing breaking news explainers. And then we have deep dive episodes like this one, where we all research a topic for weeks and then we break it down on the show in a manageable way. Right. So we want to hear what you think. You can find a link to our 2021 survey in the show notes. I promise it is short and sweet, and we hope that you'll take a few minutes to let us know what you want more of next season. So again, that's our listener survey, and you can find that linked in the show notes. Please take it. It won't take too much time, and it'll really help us give you more of what you want to hear on Inside the Vatican. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This deep dive episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and engineered by Rebecca Seidel. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Production assistance from Stefano Maiero at the Jesuit Curia in Rome and Kevin Christopher Robles. Special thanks to Father Robert Collins at America Media, Daniel Bugiel and Ulrich Loda at the Diocese of Essen, and Father Bernd Hagencord. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dilley. We'll see you in September. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. 
Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections.